This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Rome. Late August 1572, the bells of the city rang out in celebration as heralds ran through the streets declaring the news. Thousands of Huguenot Protestants had been assassinated by Catholics in France. It would come to be known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and for the newly elected Pope, Gregory XIII, It was cause for celebration. For the past decade, tensions between the Catholics and the French Huguenots had run high. After the Bible was published and distributed in French instead of Latin, it became accessible to the masses. Many didn't need to rely on the word of the Vatican anymore. The Reformation was in full swing. And that did not sit well with the new pope, The blood had barely dried in the streets of Paris when he ordered the celebration. The festivities even included Te Deum Thanksgiving services, a rare type of worship reserved only for special occasions. Gregory was sending a clear message to the Protestants of Europe. The Counter-Reformation was here, and a new era of the Catholic Church was just beginning. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Historical Figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today we're discussing the life of Pope Gregory Thirteenth an important figure in the early modern Catholic Church and creator of the Gregorian calendar, which we all still use today. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Well, let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Gregory Thirteenth. Long before he took the name Gregory XIII upon becoming Pope, he was called Ugo Boncompagni. He was born in the early hours of January 7, 1502, in Bologna, Italy. 
Uh, not much is known about Ugo's early life. We do know that he was the fifth son of Cristoforo Boncampani, a merchant, and Angela Mariscali. Ugo's family was wealthy and part of the Bolognese aristocracy. Naturally, his upbringing would have been quite privileged. Back then, Italy looked quite different from the way we know it today. It wasn't a united country, but rather a collection of kingdoms and republics, with the papal states in the middle of them. The papal states were a theocratic monarchy, led by the pope in Rome. Government was administered by the church. The church was the state. Although, while the religious beliefs of the church influenced the government, the church considered its political mission to be separate from its religious one. There was canon law, which set religious standards and practices, and civil law, which governed the day-to-day administration of the state. After Rome, Bologna was the second most important city in the Papal States and one of its most prosperous. At the time, the University of Bologna was famous for its law school, which attracted students from all over Europe, including young Ugo. He was a brilliant student with a natural talent for the law, both civil and canon. He was so good that the year after his graduation in 1530, the 29-year-old Ugo was made a professor at the university. For the next eight years, he would spend his days teaching there. Clearly, the law was something he was passionate about. But the man who would become pope was born into turbulent times, not just for the Catholic Church, but all of Europe. The untenable instability that Ugo witnessed would inspire him to be a lifelong agent of reform. The popes that ruled Rome during the Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries were anything but saints, to put it mildly. You can say that again. The papal court was a decadent den of sin, with many cardinals taking multiple mistresses. Some, like Pope Alexander VI from the notorious Borgia family, openly had affairs, even after being elected pope. Nepotism was also rampant. Popes would appoint family members as cardinals, some of whom were barely teenagers. Others would give papal lands to relatives, which in turn would be used to make their families wealthier. They would also use their position to marry off family members and develop ties with other powerful European families. This was also a time of fundraising for the church, almost always through nefarious means. Rome of the early 15th century was run down and hardly looked the part of the center of Western European Christianity. Big changes were needed if they were to create an awe-inspiring place of pilgrimage for the faithful. But big changes would require big money. And it wasn't just building projects that needed funding. The papal court lived lavishly, throwing parties and accumulating finery. When Pope Sixtus IV was crowned in 1471, his coronation tiara cost over 100,000 ducats, one-third of the annual papal allowance. Traditionally, most of the church's revenue came from performing its spiritual duties throughout Europe, as well as levying taxes in the papal states. However, by the time of the Renaissance, 
these avenues weren't enough to fund the grand plans these popes had for their church. The papacy turned to a whole host of unscrupulous means to make money. One of these included selling offices in the Roman Curia, the bureaucracy through which the church ran its affairs. The number of members in the Curia exploded. The ranks of cardinals swelled, and eventually positions were made up just so they could be sold. Pope Innocent VIII had 52 men on staff just to take care of the lead seals on official documents. Over time, the salaries from these purchased positions would exceed the amount that was paid for them, making them lucrative for the cardinals. This practice extended to bishops, who would buy several dioceses, then simply sit back and collect the revenue. Some bishops never even set foot in the diocese that made them rich. This was problematic for anyone looking for spiritual guidance or salvation. They were essentially on their own, until the church invented what was perhaps its most egregious way of raising money, the sale of indulgences. Indulgences were spiritual blessings sold at a price, and they had become tools for raising money and flat-out corruption. Sometimes the proceeds were used to fund reconstruction in Rome. Sometimes bishops would split the money with the papacy and line their own pockets as well. Salvation now came at a price, and the highest bidder received it. To the devout, this was unacceptable. Many began to see Rome as a hive of worldly decadence and utter corruption. And slowly, the church started losing its power as the dominant political force in Europe. In France, King Francis I began a campaign of conquest in northern Italy, a region that had been claimed by various European rulers over the years. The French army made it all the way to Florence, not far from Ugo's doorstep in Bologna. In order to prevent the French armies from continuing down the Italian peninsula into the Papal States, Pope Leo X signed the Concordat of Bologna in 1515 with King Francis. The Concordat stipulated that France would be allowed to appoint church leaders in its territory. This essentially created a French national church, one that the Pope had very little control over. Ugo Boncampani would have been 13 years old when this treaty was being negotiated in his hometown. It was customary for monarchs and high-ranking clergy to make big entrances when arriving in a city, so Ugo would have likely been aware of what was happening. Which ultimately was a bad thing for the church. Not only had this whole affair diminished the Pope's sphere of influence in Europe, but it had shown the public that the Papal States couldn't defend themselves against foreign invaders. And this was just the beginning of the church's troubles in the 16th century. A schism was brewing in Western Europe, one that would shake the church to its very core, split entire nations, and cause thousands upon thousands of deaths in the centuries to come. That seismic event was the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was a religious and political rift that swept across Europe, challenging the papacy's authority. The desire to reform the corrupt church had been simmering for decades. 
on October 31, 1517, it boiled over. German friar and theology professor Martin Luther posted his infamous 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. Luther, like many in Germany, resented the opulence, the corruption, and the lack of spirituality in Rome. He proposed the radical idea that people were saved from damnation through faith alone and not through the church's indulgences. His spiritual teachings called for a more personal relationship with God rather than relying on priests for that connection. He translated the Bible into German to empower the common people to explore the scripture, which he believed to be the ultimate religious authority. The Catholic Church only permitted the Bible in Latin, making lay people who didn't speak the ancient language reliant on priests to explain what was in it. This was another way the church exerted its control. Thanks to the relatively recent advent of the printing press, Luther's ideas spread through Europe within a few months. But Ugo, the future Pope Gregory, lived in papal Italy. It's unlikely he would have been exposed to the Protestant way of thinking in 1517. Despite losing power abroad, Rome still had strong control over its own territory. Initially, Rome didn't take Martin Luther's challenge seriously. Part of this was due to a fundamental lack of understanding of the political temperature in Germany. By the time Rome started to realize Luther's power, it was too late. Even excommunicating him from the church in 1521 did nothing to reduce his influence. But Luther's grassroots challenge to papal authority was not the only one in the works. Further power would be taken by an unlikely person, Charles V, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Charles V was not only the ruler in Central Europe, but through his inheritance of the Spanish crown, he ruled much of Southern Italy too. He gained even more Italian territory in the north after a war against France in 1522, when Ugo would have been 20. Rome, it seemed, was surrounded by Charles, and his power was becoming a real threat. When Pope Clement VII was elected to the papacy in 1523, he signed an alliance with France and went to war against Charles. The Pope was now fighting the Holy Roman Empire. All these nations were Catholic, but political and imperial ambition trumped religious solidarity. Unfortunately for Clement, Charles's armies pushed south down the Italian peninsula, and eventually Rome was sacked in 1527. In his defense, Charles himself hadn't actually sanctioned the sack of Rome, Rather, it was carried out by mutinous troops in his imperial army who hadn't been paid. They saw the city as a perfect place to ransack for its wealth. Over the course of several days, thousands were killed as Clement was forced into hiding. It only ended when he paid the looters an enormous ransom to leave. The sack of Rome shocked the Christian world, and no doubt shocked Ugo as well. For the second time during his formative years, a foreign army had defeated and humiliated his home country. 
In his early life, Ugo was not particularly religious or active in the church. Being from a wealthy family, access to earthly pleasure would have been much more tempting than spiritual enlightenment, particularly in a city that was so far away from Rome. But the outcome of the war was hard to miss. Peace negotiations took place in Bologna in 1529. Once again, Ugo, now 27, had a front row seat to the highest levels of international politics. It exposed him to the humiliation of the papal state's defeat in a very explicit way. This humiliation would be furthered the following year, when Clement publicly absolved the soldiers who participated in the sack of Rome. While Rome was licking its wounds, it continued to have its authority challenged abroad. This time, that challenge came from England. King Henry VIII of England had initially been an ardent supporter of Rome. He had employed theologians to counter Protestant ideas and had successfully prevented a reformation from taking root in his country. In recognition of this, Henry was given the title of Defender of the Faith. He later used this as leverage for a papal dispensation in order to marry his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon of Spain. However, when Catherine didn't produce a male heir for Henry, he petitioned Pope Clement to allow him to divorce her. Clement denied him. And in response, Henry nationalized the clergy, creating the Church of England in 1534. King Henry was excommunicated by Clement's successor, Pope Paul III, in 1538. But the damage had already been done. England was no longer within the papacy's sphere of influence. Though he didn't know it at the time, Ugo would inherit this crisis in England. It would prove to be one of the major challenges to his papacy. Coming up, the man who would become Pope Gregory XIII joins the church. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1500s, Christendom was rocked by the Protestant Reformation. At first, the Catholic Church didn't give much thought to these fringe radicals, but as time went on, they could no longer ignore the rebellion. The sack of Rome, the papacy's humiliation at the hands of Charles V, and the loss of England had made it abundantly clear that reform was inevitable. It was around this time that Ugo Boncampagni decided on a career change. After years of teaching at the University of Bologna, he decided to put his skills to use in service of the church. 
1539, at the age of 37, he joined the ecclesiastic state. Ugo's reasoning for this career change is unclear. Perhaps he was inspired to get involved by the tumultuous events of his youth. Maybe he had a divine revelation and believed that he needed to save the church from itself and outside forces. Whatever his reason, he embraced his new calling wholeheartedly. His conversion came at a fortuitous time. Ugo's legal skills had caught the attention of Rome, and he was called there to serve in a variety of legal and administrative capacities under Paul III. His legal knowledge was put to practical use, as opposed to the theoretical world of academia. Ugo excelled, and his hard work and talent impressed his superiors, so much so that in 1545, Paul III sent Ugo to serve as a papal jurist at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was a pivotal moment in the history of the Catholic Church. It would mark the start of a period of reformation within the Church itself, as well as the start of the Counter-Reformation against the Protestants. A council to reform the Church had been suggested for decades, but earlier popes had been hesitant to call one. The papacy had traditionally been against councils, fearing any changes could undermine their authority. But now, Rome had little left to lose. A Protestant uprising was brewing on its borders. Charles V's empire, which spanned most of Europe, faced religious turmoil. The Holy Roman Empire was still a power player on the world stage, but it was losing ground quickly. The Papal States, along with their allies, France and Spain, agreed to meet in the city of Trent in northern Italy. It was a compromise, not technically on papal land, which placated the Holy Roman Empire, but still in Italy. In the early 1540s, the church had tried meeting with the Lutherans in order to avoid the need for a council, but they simply couldn't agree on the issues, particularly those relating to salvation and the meaning of the sacraments. Citing irreconcilable theological differences, the Protestants left the table. Which leads us to the Council of Trent, Ugo's big diplomatic debut. The council needed to achieve two things— reform the structure of the church, and come to a consensus about foundational church doctrine. The very survival of Catholicism depended on solving these two issues. It was this high-stakes world that Ugo found himself walking into. He was part of a special commission that examined the bishop's obligation to actually reside within their diocese and preach. This council also discussed disciplinary reform. Ugo was in his element. His legal training and ecclesiastic experience were put to the test, and he must have felt a sense of pride at being entrusted with this important area of reform. But as to be expected, things did not go smoothly at Trent. Topics like original sin, biblical canon, and the sacraments were hotly debated, questions that modern Catholics might consider settled today. However, there was something else that became even more disruptive to the council. In 1547, there was fear of a disease outbreak in Trent, so the council was moved to nearby Bologna, Ugo's hometown. 
This sudden location change did not sit well with Emperor Charles. Since the initial agreement had been for the council to be held in German lands, which Trent technically was, being part of his empire. While Pope Paul III and Charles debated how to proceed, the council tried to press on. But with these two heads of state at odds with each other, the council fizzled out by 1549. The first session of council, at least, well, they'd made some initial progress, but there was still much that needed to be resolved. The council would meet again in three separate sessions over the next 18 years. But until then, Ugo had other church matters to attend to. He accompanied Cardinal Alfonso Carafa on a diplomatic mission to France in 1556, and then again on a mission to Flanders in 1557 to meet King Philip II of Spain. Philip immediately took a liking to Ugo. Through his work for the ecclesiastic state, Ugo had a reputation in the Catholic world, and his affable personality clicked with the young king. Philip was a passionate Catholic, dedicated to the church and to fighting the Protestant Reformation. It's likely he saw himself in Ugo. Upon completion of this mission, 56-year-old Ugo was made Bishop of Viesti in 1558. Despite having worked in the bureaucracy of the Papal States for years, he hadn't actually been ordained into the clergy at all until now. His reasons for staying out of the priesthood aren't clear, but after years of being surrounded by papal ministers, Ugo was apparently ready to let go of his worldliness and embrace a life of faith. Faith may not have been his only motivation. After being intimately involved in reforming and representing the interests of Rome, he now had ambitions for something more. Becoming a bishop was his first step towards his ultimate goal, the papacy. But if he wanted to reach the highest office in the church, there had to still be a church to oversee. As the Protestant Reformation continued to sweep through Europe, the Council of Trent finally reconvened. In 1559, Ugo was sent there as a confidential deputy to the newly elected Pope Pius IV. The third and final round of the Council of Trent solidified reforms regarding bishops residing within their diocese, created seminaries, and confirmed Catholic doctrine. It concluded in 1563 and sent its decrees to Pius IV for approval. After almost two decades of intense debate, cataclysmic world events, and international power struggles, the Catholic Church finally found its way forward into the modern era. But while they successfully reformed their own ranks, bringing the Protestants under control would be far more challenging. After Trent, 62-year-old Ugo continued to represent the church abroad, going on a mission to Spain in 1564. He was sent to investigate the Archbishop Bartolomé Carranza of Toledo, who had been accused of heresy during the Spanish Inquisition. While concluding his investigation, he was once again within the sphere of King Philip. What had been a relationship of respect transformed into a firm friendship. 
one that would be of incredible importance in Hugo's rise through the church hierarchy. While in Spain, two more monumental changes would happen in Hugo's life. In 1565, at age 63, he was promoted to cardinal, the highest ranks in the church hierarchy under the pope. In fewer than 10 years, he had gone from cleric to cardinal, a meteoric rise to say the least. Then, in 1566, Pope Pius IV was succeeded by Pius V. Under the new regime, Ugo returned to Rome and was given the office of secretary of papal briefs. He was in charge of formal documents that came from the Pope, particularly those that went to foreign leaders. His diplomatic and legal experience made him well-suited for this job. Pius V was a strong reformer. He ensured that bishops remained in their diocese, got rid of redundant positions in the church hierarchy, and brought land that had been given away to nepotism back under the control of Rome. However, dealing with Protestantism was another matter. The Holy Roman Empire had started to tolerate Protestantism in order to maintain peace within the kingdom, which caused tension with the Pope in Rome. Religious turmoil persisted in England as well. When the Catholic Queen Mary I died, her sister Elizabeth took the throne. Elizabeth was a Protestant, and tension with the Catholic Church resumed, especially once Catholics began facing persecution during her reign. Even after decades of self-reform, it seemed the church was unable to stop the spread of Protestantism. What were all those years of work and bloodshed for if they couldn't contain the heresy? Pope Pius V spent the rest of his tenure continuing the battle. But the question became obvious within the church. If Pius couldn't do it, could his successor stop the chaos. Coming up, Cardinal Ugo Boncompagni becomes Pope Gregory XIII. Now, back to the story. For almost two decades, the Catholic Church was in the midst of soul-searching while the Protestant Reformation swept across Europe. The Council of Trent sought to reform the Church to contain the spread of Protestantism to no avail. For Ugo Boncampani, who attended the event as a cleric, the council proved to be a jumping-off point for his life within the church. He quickly became a favorite and was ordained, first as a bishop, then as a cardinal. In 1572, Pope Pius V died and the College of Cardinals convened to elect a new pope in conclave. Conclaves were highly political affairs. Inevitably, factions would emerge, each vying for a favored candidate. Some cardinals weren't above bribery to try and win support. In the conclave of 1572, Cardinal Ugo Boncompagni wasn't even in the running at first. Two other cardinals had emerged as frontrunners through the usual shadowy intrigue. But shortly after the conclave began on May 12th, an envoy from King Philip II of Spain arrived. This envoy made a startling proclamation. The king would only accept the election of his friend, 
Cardinal Ugo. This might have just been a grand gesture from a good friend, but there also may have been an ulterior motive at play. Philip had clashed with Pius V over control of the church in Spain. Having his friend as pope would help him keep the control he so desperately desired. Historically, conclaves could last either several days or several weeks. The conclave of 1572 lasted less than 24 hours. On May 13th, 70-year-old Cardinal Ugo Boncampani was elected pope. Many historians believe that King Philip's announcement was a major factor in his election. Though Ugo was 70, he still had the vigor of a man half his age. He adopted the name Gregory for his papacy after the first Pope Gregory, who was a reformer in the early days of the church. Gregory's choice of name made his intentions clear. And those intentions became even clearer when, just three months into his papacy, he ordered a Te Deum Thanksgiving in response to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France. Spearheaded by John Calvin, Protestantism had spread to France years earlier, but the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was a watershed moment in the bloody clashes between Catholics and Protestants in the country. Historians disagree as to whether or not Pope Gregory XIII was involved in planning the massacre itself. However, he clearly considered it a victory for the Catholics. One thing was clear. He was taking the fight directly to the Protestants. But in order to do so, he would need a higher caliber of priest on his side. Not the corrupt, absent, and theologically inept clergy of the past, but an educated pastoral class with the drive to reform the church and challenge the spread of Protestantism. Throughout his papacy, Gregory built colleges across Europe to train priests to reform the churches in their homelands. The largest project was the expansion of the Jesuit college in Rome, which became known as the Gregorian University in the Pope's honor. Germans, Austrians, Greeks, Hungarians, and Armenians all got their own colleges. Even the English, who faced the perilous task of trying to restore Catholicism in England, got a seminary. Bishops were now also required to live in their own diocese, and per the Council of Trent, they had instructions on how often they were required to preach. Gregory must have felt a sense of pride in seeing his life's work come to fruition. But building colleges and implementing Council of Trent reforms weren't all that he wished to accomplish. His papacy occurred amidst the Age of Discovery, and he had his eyes set outside of Europe. The colonization of the Americas and the discovery of new lands in Asia presented Rome with new opportunities to expand its sphere of influence. Though sending missionaries to foreign lands was far from a new endeavor, Gregory made sure to continue the practice. He supported Jesuit missions to Brazil, India, China, the Philippines, and Japan. He also sent numerous diplomatic missions around Europe to convert new countries to Catholicism. The still young Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania proved to be one of the more successful missions. 
However, a similar mission to Russia ended with a papal diplomat barely escaping with his life from Ivan the Terrible. These reforms and missions, though, were not merely out of spiritual duty. Gregory knew that having a trained priesthood staffing European dioceses and converting others would help in the church's fight against Protestantism, whether it was in Europe or these newly discovered lands. Gregory also supported numerous building projects in Rome. In 1575, the 73-year-old declared a jubilee year that saw a staggering 300,000 pilgrims come to the holy city. Those pilgrims would go home impressed by the splendor of a renewed Rome and sensed that the church was moving forward into a brighter future. But despite the incredible amount of reform that Gregory implemented, it wouldn't be what history remembered him for. Rather, history would remember him for changing the way we document time. Well, most of us probably don't give much thought to the calendar we use on a daily basis. It is called the Gregorian calendar and is, you guessed it, named after Pope Gregory XIII. Up until the Gregorian calendar's release in 1582, the Western world had used the Julian calendar, which had been created under the rule of Julius Caesar. Unlike the inaccurate lunar calendars that preceded it, the Julian calendar was based on the solar year, or how long it takes the Earth to revolve around the sun. The Julian calendar was 365 days, with an extra day every fourth year, what we call a leap year. Thus, the average length of year was 365.25 days, which was 11 minutes too long. That may not sound like much, but over hundreds of years, those 11 minutes add up. By the time of Gregory XIII's papacy, the calendar was off by 10 days. This was problematic when it came to celebrating Easter. The Council of Nicaea in 32 CE had established that Easter was to be celebrated one week after the first full moon of the vernal equinox. By the 1500s, they were technically celebrating Easter on the wrong day, since the equinox now happened 10 days earlier than the Julian calendar said it was supposed to. Considering the importance of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection in the Christian faith, it was paramount that they observe it on the correct day. The Council of Trent had approved an update to the calendar decades earlier, but no one had taken up the task until Gregory came along. After years of consultation with astronomers and mathematicians, Gregory's calendar was unveiled in 1582. The Gregorian calendar made one tiny change from the Julian. Year numbers that are divisible by 100 are not leap years, but years that are divisible by 400 are leap years. For example, the year 2000 was a leap year, but 2100, 2200, and 2300 are not. It sounds bizarre, but this little fix brought the average length of a year down to 365.2425 days, erasing those extra 11 minutes. After some minor tweaks, Gregory signed a papal bull, or decree, establishing it as the official calendar within his sphere of influence. Catholic countries implemented the calendar immediately, and just like that, 
Ten whole days were wiped off the calendar. Everyone who went to sleep on October 4th, 1582, woke up on October 15th. The papacy, which had seen its power decline for decades, now had the ability to alter time itself. Updating the calendar was very much in line with the church's efforts at doctrinal reform. However, given the impact it would have on the world, Gregory likely also saw it as a power move. But the adoption of the Gregorian calendar didn't go unchallenged, especially by the Protestants. Many Protestants had come to believe that the Pope was the literal Antichrist. The new calendar was dismissed as an attempt to throw off their calculations of the end of days and leave them unprepared when judgment came. Protestants' resistance meant that many Western European countries wouldn't adopt the calendar until the 18th century. Russia wouldn't adopt it until 1917, and China wouldn't fully adopt the Gregorian calendar until under Mao in 1949. Despite it being the most famous and wide-reaching aspect of his legacy, Pope Gregory himself didn't think much about his calendar. He was far more proud of the reform he brought to the church. However, Gregory was not successful in everything he set out to do. In fact, he failed in a number of his foreign ventures. He spent considerable time and money trying to convince Irish Catholics and King Philip II of Spain to invade England and overthrow the Protestant Queen Elizabeth I. When that failed, he allegedly supported several plots to assassinate Elizabeth. These, too, were unsuccessful, and the consequences led to the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, his intended successor for the English crown. It's obvious that Gregory was not above using violence to destroy Protestantism. The bloody sack of Rome that had occurred during his youth likely remained with him to his dying day. Pope Gregory's reign would also deplete the papal coffers. The colleges, missions abroad, military efforts, and restoration projects in Rome all cost incredible sums of money. But restoring the church's revenues would be left to his successor. On April 10, 1585, Pope Gregory XIII suddenly died at the age of 83 from an unknown illness. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and was succeeded by Pope Sixtus V. Sixtus's reign would be far more brutal than Gregory's. He ruled with absolute tyranny, bringing lawlessness in the papal states under control through thousands of executions. From an irreligious, worldly young legal scholar in Bologna to a key figure at the Council of Trent to the leader of all Catholics, Pope Gregory XIII led an incredible and impactful life. Under his papacy, Gregory took papal Rome from a den of sin to an organized and driven body that its members could be proud of. But the blood he shed in his mission to spread Catholicism shows a much darker side to Gregory's reign. Like many great figures in history, his life and legacy are complex but he can be credited with bringing the Catholic Church out of the Renaissance and into the modern era. 
Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Historical Figures for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Historical Figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Nick Rochalt, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. (laughs) 